Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us. Rebuilding Catholic Culture, Restoring Catholic Tradition Hello, faithful listeners. This is your host, Steve. I'm in a weird mood this morning, guys. I'll tell you what. It may have something to do with the fact that before I even rolled out of bed, I had emails about... Your favorite and mine, Pope Francis, talking about how when Jesus responded to questions about marriage, he took the approach of Moses, you know, because mercy. I'm sorry, but I I seem to remember that scripture being a little bit different than that. I don't know about you. I know my exegesis is one of my weaker areas of theological study, but I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus said. Maybe we could look it up. So the text in question comes from Matthew 19. So I'll just read it to you. We're going to do Dewey Reams, so hopefully it'll be readable enough uh, that we can kind of glean what Jesus is saying here. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And there came to him the Pharisees, tempting him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Who answering said to them, Have ye not read that he who made man from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be in one flesh. Therefore now they are not two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined, let no man put asunder. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a bill of divorce and to put away? He saith to them, Because Moses, by reason of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you that whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And he that shall marry her that is put away committeth adultery. So, Jesus said, if you get divorced and you get remarried, it's adultery. Now, let's turn to the homily of Pope Francis today. But Jesus, Pope Francis continued, so merciful. He is so great that he never, never, never closes the door to sinners. And so he does not limit himself to proclaiming the truth of God, but goes on to ask the Pharisees what Moses had established in the law. And when the Pharisee responded that Moses permitted a husband to write a bill of divorce, Jesus replied that this was permitted because of the hardness of your hearts. That is, the Pope explained, Jesus always distinguished between the truth and human weakness without twisting words. 
in the world in which we live, I'm laughing because it's insane, with this culture of the provisional, this reality of sin is so strong. But Jesus, recalling Moses, tells us, but there is hardness of heart. There is sin. Something can be done. Forgiveness, understanding, accompaniment, integration, discernment of these cases, but always. But the truth is never sold. And Jesus is capable of stating this very great truth. And at the same time, being so understanding with sinners, with the weak. He's not even trying. He's not even trying to represent what the gospel says anymore. He's not hiding. And I want Jimmy Aiken or somebody to give me at least 12 things to know and share about how this is orthodox. And I want a semantic parsing down to the molecule so that we can twist ourselves up into, into the idolatry of of papal positivism because we worship the Pope and everything he says must be right. I have to I have to tell you, I've been exhausted lately because the man has Alright, I'm gonna say this. You know, I'm probably gonna catch a lot of flack for it, but as I laid there in my bed this morning looking at my phone and I'm reading this, I said, Lord Help me. The man has a demonic energy for error, for saying things that are wrong, and I don't want to spend my life responding to those things. I don't have what it takes to keep up with the wrecking ball. I don't even know if it's doing any good anymore at this point. Because for those of us who know that he's wrong, it's a scourging. Every time it's a scourging. It's just, good God, why won't he stop talking? But for those who refuse to see it, I don't know. Is it a service at this point? Are we providing a service anymore? When we say, look, he did it again. Here are the quotes side by side and they're, he's wrong. He is wrong. He is twisting the scriptures, the divinely revealed inerrant scriptures. And if you ask me, is he trying to create new concrete possibilities? My response would be, I can say yes, period. But that would be too small of an answer. So let me direct you to the entire history of his pontificate and all the documenting we have done to show the clever casuistry with which he conducts himself in the attempt to dismantle the Catholic faith. It is the weirdest thing in the world to be a Catholic and to be a faithful one who has spent your entire life loving and honoring the papacy and then find that your single greatest threat is the man who occupies that office. The single greatest threat to the Catholic faith in the world today is the man who is the Pope. Think about that. Think about how terrifying of a reality that really is. The devil must be so happy because he has led us 
just glom on to this papal authority. To, to the person of the Pope who, relatively speaking, and that's a rabbit hole I'm not going to go into now, relatively speaking, the person of the Pope has been more orthodox than the church that surrounds him for most of the past half century. It's a, it's a matter of perspective, of course, but, but our popes have been, by and large, including Paul VI, really, more orthodox than the ecclesiastics that surrounded them. And so people started to feel really safe, trusting, trusting the Pope. Trust him. He will never steer you wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, he is steering you wrong. And he's doing it in a way that doesn't trample the charism of infallibility because it's a very limited and and strict charism. He's saying things that are wrong in his personal homilies and in his statements and interviews and airplane nonsense. He's saying it in things that look official, like apostolic exhortations, but they have almost no magisterial weight, which was as as inexpertly handled as I think Cardinal Burke handled it, which was the point that he made when he said, you know what, basically it's not magisterial, so you don't have to pay attention to it. Well, nobody knows that, your eminence, and so people do listen to it. But I'm telling everyone who is within the sound of my voice that he has been very clever, very, very clever, about not violating that charism. In fact, it may not even be him. The Holy Spirit may simply just be blocking him. And that is something I'm perfectly willing to entertain. But his agenda is evil, like the fruits of the devil. It's evil. And that's, that's a hard pill to swallow. This isn't tinfoil hat, conspiracy theory, whatever. We are given examples day in and day out of this kind of thing. I mean, I haven't even read, because I'm not a masochist, the whole interview that he gave with uh, that French paper, La Croix, earlier this week. But there was a quote that stood out, and it stood out especially because I have been reading Father Vincent Michelli's book about the Antichrist. Because I like light reading. You know, I take a break from... Pope Francis, and then I read about the greatest persecution that Christians will ever suffer and the man of sin who will be possessed by Satan and then take over the world. Because that's how I have pleasant dreams at night. Yeah, okay, maybe I am a masochist. But seriously, so I've been reading this book, and one of the things that is discussed is uh, the Antichrists, with a small a, the, the precursors to the Antichrist that have existed throughout time, who share some of his characteristics, who sort of begin prepping the way for the Antichrist. And one of those mentioned by a number of of the church fathers and popes is Muhammad. Muhammad is an Antichrist. Actually, let me correct that. It was Cardinal Newman in his sermons on the Antichrist, which are considered among the best treatises on the topic, he was the one who referred to Muhammad as a type of the Antichrist. Um, But I mean, okay, you know, we've written an article, it's one of the biggest articles we've ever done 
Uh, it's extremely popular, and it's called What Did the Saints Say About Islam? And in that article, we quoted a number of saints basically saying that Islam was an evil pestilence that God needed to destroy from the face of the earth, right? There's a far cry from that and what the Pope said in La Croix about Islam. Shall I share? Okay. So in this interview, Francis was asked about the fear of accepting migrants um, into Europe being partly based on a fear of, of Islam. And he was asked, you know, is this fear justified? His response was, and I'm quoting, Today, I don't think there is a fear of Islam as such, but of ISIS and its war of conquest, which is partly drawn from Islam. It is true that the idea of conquest is inherent in the soul of Islam. However, it is also possible to interpret the objective in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus sends his disciples to all nations in terms of the same idea of conquest. Oh, really? So... That Catholic jihad thing, that's a real thing in your mind? Yeah. He goes on, I don't know if it's worth quoting, I'll read you a little bit more. In the face of Islamic terrorism, it would therefore be better to question ourselves overtly about the way, I'm sorry, about the way in an overtly Western model of democracy has been exported to countries like Iraq, where a strong government previously existed, etc., etc. Unfortunately, coexistence between Christians and Muslims I'm sorry, ultimately, coexistence between Christians and Muslims is still possible. I come from a country where they cohabit on good terms. Hmm, I didn't know that. That would be an interesting thing to study. Muslims come to venerate the Virgin Mary and St. George. Similarly, they tell me that for the Jubilee year, Muslims in one African country had formed a long queue in the cathedral to enter through the Holy Door and pray to the Virgin Mary. In Central Africa before the war, Christians and Muslims used to live together and must learn to do so again. Lebanon also shows that this is possible. But I want to go back to this idea of Islam somehow and its its innate desire for conquest is somehow a correlative to the imperative of the Great Commission. Because remember, Islam is a word that will often be described as meaning peace, but that's not really what it is. There is a connotation of peace, but it is the peace that comes from submission to the will of Allah and to the religion of Muhammad. Islam means submission. It is peace through submission. You lose yourself to the Islamic good, the Dar al-Islam, the house of Islam. The Great Commission is about converting people to Christ in order that they may attain eternal salvation, and it is never done through the sword. It is never done through compulsion. It is never done in a way that requires slavery and, and a tax that's levied only on members of other religions. And if their places of worship burn down, they're never allowed to be rebuilt. And any of them can be conscripted into sex slavery at any time. And it doesn't matter because they're not actually you know, human, because they don't practice the same faith as you. Islam is demonic in origin. It is. 
they believe that Christ is only a man. They do not worship the same God we do because we worship Christ. Again and again and again. Error, 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 error. And it washes over us like a wave. Now, for people who know their faith, as I said before, this is more of a scourging than anything. But think of how wearying it is for you. You who know your faith. You who can detect these whiffs of error when the Pope says something that's off. When he says that Christ has sin in his soul and he likes it when you sin and you'll sin again. When he says that the miracle of the loaves and the fishes was about sharing and it wasn't magic. When he says that the Blessed Virgin Mary believed that God lied to her when she stood at the foot of the cross and saw what happened to her son and was angry because she was promised something else, which is a blasphemy. When the Sixth Commandment is institutionally turned on its head and we are told that Jesus followed Moses in mercy for the hard-hearted about divorce and remarriage, which clearly, clearly is the way Pope Francis sees his own apostolic exhortation of Morris Laetitia and the way that it will be implemented. I can say yes, period. There are new concrete possibilities for the divorced and remarried. So think about how this affects you, and then think about the majority of Catholics who, I mean, it's, it's universally accepted among the faithful who are paying attention that catechesis is in a bad way. It's been devastated. There is no good catechesis being done, for the most part, in much of the church. And the faithful are ignorant. The number of self-identified Catholics in the world remains over a billion, but the number of people who actually practice and believe what the church believes, even if they identify what the church believes, those who adhere to it, I would be surprised if it's more than 100 million, about 10%. We have a church that is comprised of unwitting, perhaps, but apostates. They are not practicing the Catholic faith. They are practicing some version of it, if they practice at all. I used to know a girl, lovely young lady, who was a professed Catholic, a baptized Catholic, a confirmed Catholic. She was funny because she wouldn't eat meat on Friday. Because, you know, you're not supposed to eat meat on Friday. And people would ask her, and she'd say, oh, I don't do that because I'm Catholic. But she was living with her boyfriend and using contraception and was open about those things too. Those things were optional. Eating meat, no, that was where she drew the line. It's like this this quasi-arbitrary religion. You just make up whatever you want to follow, and then that's fine. And that's not how it works. But the kind of confusion that is being spread... Every time the Pope says something that is wrong, how many people who go to work in a factory, how many people who go to work, uh, you know, work in construction, how many people who uh, spend most of their time doing accounting or doing any number of other professions that are, are involved and engaged 
professions that have a specific focus, either through manual labor or through through white collar work that, that's in, you know, you have to know a lot about that topic to do it. How many of those people are taking the time at night and on the weekends, the little bit of time they have to spend with their family or to do whatever else, to go read up on this stuff and say, hmm, that was wrong. Even if they have an inkling that what he's saying is wrong, what do they get? They get a headline when they get to their desk in the morning and, and read the news. They get a headline when they're looking at their phone on the train on the way home and the Pope says this. And they're like, oh, Pope says that. I can trust the Pope. He's the Pope. They're not, <laughs> they're not digging out the catechism like you and I do because we're nerds. I mean, relatively speaking, we're nerds. Let's just be honest about it. They're not going to New Advent and digging through the Catholic Encyclopedia. They're not looking at Denziger's Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. They're not reading encyclicals from the 19th century. They're not doing this stuff. They are not doing it. They are part of, and they're really victims of, the magisterium of the now. This idea that only the present pontificate and maybe some of the ones that directly preceded it, although even that's being eroded by Francis, uh, are what we should pay attention to, what we should listen to, what should matter. You know, as somebody who has a bachelor's degree in theology from a good Catholic college, I can tell you that the number of preconciliar texts that we were asked to study was so small. Uh, I knew nothing, nothing about the warnings of Pope St. Pius X or the condemnations of blessed Pope Pius IX or the proscriptions against interfaith prayer by Pope Pius XI or the warnings about Freemasonry from Pope Leo XIII. These things didn't enter into our, our view. They didn't enter into our understanding. Everything was John Paul II and Ratzinger and Resourceman and Nouvelle Theology and de Lubach and, and von Balthasar and, and what did the documents of the Second Vatican Council say? And it was almost like Gaudium et Spes and Lumen Gentium were, were the fifth and sixth Gospels. And so you would sit there as a student who had, for whatever reason, the grace to know that something wasn't right about the church, but you, know, you didn't know what it was. You knew you didn't like the fruity masses. You knew that things just kind of felt like, eh, they'd kind of become pretty mediocre. But you'd know what you were looking for. And you'd, you'd read this stuff and you're like, well, it's what the church says. I mean, gotta be okay, right? Everybody's in the matrix. I talk about this, and it's a stupid metaphor in a way because it's a stupid movie, but everybody is in the Matrix. They're all sleeping away in a dream of what reality really is, and nobody has offered them the red pill. Nobody has given them an opportunity to wake up, and then even if they do, who wants to be in, in the horrible, dark reality that we exist in where we basically... I mean, tried to throw out the church's perennial teaching of almost 2,000 years and throw gas on it and light it on fire. It won't die because it can't. 
But boy, oh boy, have they done everything they can to consign it to the trash heap of, of history. It's just it's what they've done because it's inconvenient. It bothers them. It creates conflicts. It's frankly why the SSPX is in the position that they're in. Because they, they're an exist, their existence is a living indictment of the post-conciliar experiment. They can't really be condemned because to condemn them means condemning all the previous popes and our ancestors and the faith and, and everybody who built Christendom because they all believed the same things. They all worshipped the same way. They can't be condemned. Pope Benedict said that the problems with them are ultimately doctrinal, not disciplinary. Uh, I think that's a bit of a stretch. What doctrines do they hold that the church does not hold over the course of its many centuries of existence? Give me one thing that the SSPX believes that's heretical. Give me one thing that they believe that is doctrinally unacceptable as of 1950. Because if we believe as Catholics that doctrine cannot be contradicted, that the development of doctrine is really nothing more than an elucidation, a fuller understanding of doctrinal and dogmatic truth, then we can't contradict what we believed before. And Benedict admitted as much in Samorum Pontificum, where he said that things that were once, you know, treasures of the church cannot suddenly be found to no longer be sacred. These things, I'm paraphrasing, but these things that we held dear in the past remain dear to us and true today because the nature of truth is that it's immutable. I can't tell you that I'm a man today and a manatee tomorrow, although I may resemble a manatee more tomorrow if I keep eating this way. It's part of the problem with this whole transgenderism thing. You are born with a certain biological makeup. You're born with certain organs. You're born with certain chromosomes. You don't get to just decide, today, I'm a woman. Any more than I get to just decide, today, I'm Optimus Prime. No matter how much I want to believe that I'm Optimus Prime, I'm not a big truck and I can't transform into a robot and fight, you know, alien robots from Cybertron. I can't do it. Sorry, nerd reference, I grew up in the 80s. But I, I, you can't just wish your way into an alternate reality. That's not how things work. And those who think that they can do that, it's going to not, it's going to end badly for them. It's going to. But this is the way our faith is being treated these days. And so, as I said in the beginning, you kind of, you have to laugh because if you don't, you'll cry. You'll feel an overwhelming and crushing sense of, of despair that this can go on. But the absurdity of it, in, in a way, is almost a comfort. The, the sheer obviousness of how bad it's become and the, and the ludicrous attempts to pretend like it's not happening on the part of many in the major Catholic media. I'm looking at you, Church Militant, I'm looking at you, National Catholic Register. I'm looking at you, Catholic Answers. You guys, we're all supposed to be on the same page. We're supposed to be fighting the same battle for the faith. Stop screwing around trying to make, you know, 
your heels click together three times and be in Catholic land. We're in a bad place. And any honest assessment of it is going to show you that. But once we're all on the same page, we can work together and we can fight it. And we can dispel the confusion that so many Catholics are feeling and that frankly is causing not a few of them to lose their faith. I particularly hear this from converts. Converts who become Catholic and then say, what the hell? I was sold a false bill of goods. This is not the church I studied for 10 years before I came to it. No, it isn't. In fact, every 10 years, the church is different. We've now gone far enough down this road of post-conciliar nonsense that we have a pope who is systematically undoing and replacing the work of Pope John Paul II. And Pope John Paul II himself represented a massive departure from the traditional teachings. But at least the guy loved God. I really believe he was a, a pious man who loved God and loved the church. And he made mistakes because he was malformed. I mean, he, he lived under Nazism and communism and he went to seminary underground. And there's, I mean, modernism was in its various forms just invading the intellectual life of the world. So I think the charitable interpretation is he got uh, sold a bill of bad goods and he did the best he could with it, but he made mistakes and they were damaging in the church, but he loved God. I, I don't see that in Francis. I don't see that he even believes in any of it. It's like this weird esoteric version of Catholicism where it's an ideology that's worshipped and not our Lord. Where God and the devil, though they are mentioned, are, are nothing but mythological constructs, sort of rhetorical boogeymen that are used to focus us on the agenda, whether it's saving the earth or whether it's the worship of the poor who, whom he wishes to have everyone genuflect before to kneel before, whether it's this strange humanism that puts the love of neighbor above the love of God, as he does in Evangelium 161, or whether it's this blindness to the destructive force of Islam, as stated in Evangelium 253, and also in this recent Lacroix interview. He's inviting you know, people to take in these, these Muslim immigrants who are killing them. They're overrunning any place that they gain a demographic majority and they're implementing Sharia law and they treat Christians like garbage. They treat everyone like garbage, including their own, frankly. You know, I said, I was interviewed by a podcaster this morning and we talked about this, and I mentioned the fact that I'm way better at finding problems than solutions. It's always been a weak spot for me. I, I can walk into a room and say, oh, that's what's wrong. I can see it instantly. It's like x-ray vision. But what I don't know how to do in many cases is give a solution. Because what kind of a solution do you have to something like this? There's no human solution. There's nothing. There's nothing that we can do other than pray, do penance, 
find the best possible place we can to receive the sacraments and good preaching, shelter and educate our children, collect as many books as you can about the faith. And honestly, I, look, I'm a big technophile, right? I love my Kindle. I love reading things electronically. I like the, the convenience of storing all that information in a, in a little tiny package. But I've been buying a lot of real books lately, and it's because, in part, they're not available electronically. But, but there's this thing in the back of my brain going, this is good. Build a library of these books because they're not going to be available. Things get far enough out of hand, and that stuff is going to go away. And, and the gatekeepers who have that information, the Amazons of the world, whatever, they're just going to stop selling that stuff. And you're not going to be able to get it anymore. And they're going to pull it off your Kindle because they can do that if you bought it electronically. So build a resource library that you can refer to. This sounds so paranoid, but seriously, what is it going to hurt to have, have this stuff in dead tree form? so that you can reference it. What, it. what kind of a world, what kind of a church are our children going to inherit if anything like what we know today even still exists, if God doesn't just chastise us back to the Stone Age, which I think is a real possibility. We've been writing about Fatima lately. I have frequently referenced the apocalyptic warnings of Our Lady of Akita which are said to be a direct mirror of Fatima, including the parts that nobody's ever seen. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, chastisement will almost certainly come. And I don't know how bad it'll be. I don't know if it can be averted. I don't know if it's better to be at ground zero when the asteroids come or, you know, to survive it and carry on the faith. I think personally, I would prefer ground zero. But then again, I kind of would like to see my kids grow up and, and meet grandchildren and, you know, I've never been to Hawaii. There's stuff I want to do. Maybe that's selfish. I'll, I'll accept whatever God does, but we need to stay in a state of grace. We need to stay close to the sources. We need to do everything we can to understand our faith as well as possible so that when we, we see these errors, they don't corrupt our conception of, of reality. We need to help those around us who may be struggling. We need to not be afraid to have these conversations with people and to point out this is what's wrong and this is why it's a problem. Really, the only solution we have is to go back to living the most authentically Catholic life we can. To be, as I have said before, to be the kind of Catholic you want the world to be full of. There's some snarky little people who have used that line against me because I'm so, you know, combative and controversial and, and I'm just not nice to people because I'm a mean bully. Well, sorry guys, but charity is not all about, you know, perfume and roses. Charity is not flattery. Charity is not feelings. Charity is about love and love is about willing the good of another. If you're my friend and you're diabetic and you're snarfing down candy bars, I'm going to say something to you because I love you and I don't want to watch you go into diabetic shock. This is what love is. And so allowing people to persist in their errors and not confront them 
or allowing people to promulgate and spread errors and not to say, no, this is wrong. You're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You're working with the devil. Whether you want to or not, you're serving his agenda. Stop it. Stop it now. That's not a failure to be the kind of Catholic that we want the world to be full of. Yes, we need to find opportunities for kindness and encouragement as much as for condemnation and confrontation. But I would love to see the world full of Catholics who stand their ground. I would love to see the world full of Catholics who say, no, I know my faith and what you're teaching from the pulpit, from the chancery, from the apostolic see, that's not Catholic. That's not Catholicism. That's not our Lord's teaching. And you're wrong. And you need to stop. You need to repent. You need to reform. You need to convert. We don't have anything left to lose. I get so frustrated because the bishops are just ugh, dancing on eggshells. Most of them, honestly, don't even have what it takes to confront this, but I know there are some who do, and they are, they're wimping out. They're wimping out, even the ones I respect. This needs to be confronted in a masculine, strong way. This is, this is war. This is intellectual in nature, but it is war. This is a battle for the soul of the church. And it brings me back again to humor. Don't lose your sense of humor. Yes, this is serious. But if you can't laugh at it, if you can't find friends you can commiserate with, if you can't kick your feet up and have a drink and watch a movie and just be like, you know what? Whatever. Today I'm not going to worry about it. You're going to lose your mind. Despair will follow an overly intense focus on these things all the time. I've been tempted with it myself. I get completely overwhelmed. You know, I have at this moment 207 unread emails in my primary inbox and 1,050 in my secondary. I, I cannot keep up with all the stuff that's going on. I cannot keep up with the number of comments and questions, the number of submissions about various things, the number of, you know, just interactions that, that the work I do obligates me to. The number of people who say, what do we do? I'm writing to you because I don't know what to do. And I want to help them. But I'm not your guy. Look, I'm, I'm Virgil here, okay? I'm... I'm guiding you to the extent that it's possible through the inferno. Uh, the purgatorio is way far off. We're in the inferno now. But only through divine protection, only through love of God and his church and his teachings and the sacraments, only through those things will you weather this experience. It's the only way. So I'm asking you to join me in in solidarity, in confronting error, but in also finding the joy in, in what we do have. Because guess what? 
we are the most literate generation that ever lived on the face of the planet. And yes, that may be diminishing, but we can all read. We have access at this moment to the entire sum total of human knowledge through the palm of our hand. We can get infinite books. You can even get out of print books. They're scanned, they're online, they're, they're free. We can study our faith. We can understand the truths of it. We know that it is unchanging. The traditional mass has made a resurgence, and yeah, it's not huge yet, but there are places for us to go to get the sacraments in a way that is proper and fitting worship of God. We've got all this stuff. So yeah, the things I talked about earlier, the errors of Francis, they are coming hard and fast. And I have mentioned to you Archbishop Fernandez, his friend from, from Argentina who ghostwrites all of his stuff, has said, look, the Pope has an agenda. He knows what he's doing. And if he feels like he's running out of time, he's going to begin speeding up. Well, he's speeding up. But we're not going anywhere. Plant your feet, set your shoulders, come at us. I'm the kind of person who says, you know what? If I got five friends, I'll take on your army. As long as God is with me, I have nothing to fear. They can take everything from us except our souls. That exists in the temporal realm when it comes to war or persecution or you name it, martyrdom. They can take your lives, but they can't take your souls. Your soul is your job to preserve. And you have to put whatever construct around it you need to do that. And if that means get away from the computer, get away from the news. Don't read every stupid thing that comes out of Rome because it just makes you want to punch things. Then do that. Spend more time with your family. Spend more time in prayer. Go to adoration. Make sure you're saying the rosary every day. Do the prayers of the Auxilium Christianorum. Read the breviary. Do the office of the, the little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Read the scriptures. Read the saints. Go back and look at the Arian heresy and see how St. Athanasius and, and St. Basil and all those guys dealt with that crisis. Find a, a parish or a traditional community that you feel comfortable with and move there. Move your family. Sell your house. Sell all your crap and go there. Because it is what will sustain you. Do what it takes. It's different for all of us. We all need different things. Find friends who you trust, who feel the same way you do, and get together and have drinks and talk about it. And then talk about other stuff. Talk about other things. Don't just dwell on this all the time. It is an occupational hazard for me that I dwell on this stuff far more than I should. And my wife will tell you just how pleasant that is. She wants to kill me sometimes because it's just one thing after another. I tried to send her this video last night. Uh, and she's like, if it has to do with the Pope, I'm not watching it. That's where we are in our house. So that's my burden. And I'll sort that out. But for you, find what you need to do. But don't lose hope heart, conviction, faith, or your sense of humor about all of it. Because God has a plan, and it's actually unfolding even now. We can't see it, because that's always how it works. And if you think back on your life, 
when you see the things that happened that were providential, when you see the things in your life that happened that God led you to, do you ever really see it ahead of time? Like maybe you have a suspicion. Oh, I think God's leading me to do this. But it's only after the weird, crazy story arc of whatever the thing was that he wanted you to to do reaches its inevitable conclusion. And then you stop and you look back and you're like, holy cow. That whole time, those doors that closed, the suffering that happened here, this bad thing that came up, this one blessing, that thing opened and there was an opportunity and that was all him. He was leading me down this convoluted path and because I was open to him and I asked for his guidance, I was able to follow that guide star to where I am now and now I see he led me here for a reason. But we're we're in the thick of it it's just confusing and impossible. And you look around, and you're like, I don't, I just don't, I don't know what to do. I don't see a way out. My wife and I talk about this all the time. Like we're always surrounded by problems that seem like they have no solutions. And we sit and we talk and we talk and we talk and we're like, eh, we don't really have a conclusion to this because how do we overcome this thing? We don't have enough information. We don't have the resources. We don't have the money, whatever it is. Just stick by Christ's side. Or as the Anima Christi says, hide yourself. In his wounds. Because it's the only place where we're going to be safe. Lord, to whom shall we turn? You alone have the words of everlasting life. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. God bless you and thanks for listening. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5 and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash, you guessed it, 1peter5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page located at 1peter5.com forward slash donate and make a contribution. It's tax deductible and not only helps pay for our web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.